be willing to deal with your sin even if it means getting radical, taking extreme steps, not mutilating your body, that won't help, but getting radical with the things in your life that lead you into sin, disconnecting from those as much as you can. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part four of The Disciples' Greatest Danger. So far throughout this series, we've looked at the two greatest dangers in the life of a disciple of Christ, causing other believers to sin and tolerating personal sin. And as you're discovering, tolerating sin can take many forms, but so can the so-called remedies. Today, Tom will give you some examples of how Christians may try to deal with sin in their lives in unbiblical ways. And he'll point to six distinct warnings about sin's danger and the often radical biblical steps needed to remove it from your life. Let's join Tom now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. In this passage that we're looking at in Mark 9, our Lord denies the mortality of the soul. You will live somewhere forever, Jesus says, and there are only two alternatives. That's it. Eternal punishment or eternal life. You will either enter life and enter the kingdom of Christ and God, or you will be cast into hell. That's it. The soul is not mortal. It will live on somewhere forever. He also denies universalism, the idea that everyone will be saved. Clearly, he rules that out in this text. He rules out second chance or second probation. This is the sort of mistaken idea that after death, salvation will again be offered to those who died without Christ, and they'll have a second chance, and then if they believe, they'll be in. Our Lord certainly doesn't teach that here or anywhere else. In fact, in several places, he slams the door on that. Our Lord also here denies annihilationism. This is popular among even men who have been a part of evangelicalism, men like John Stott, whose name you'll hear me quote from time to time. Unfortunately, he's bought into the fact that unbelievers will ultimately be completely destroyed and actually cease to exist. Our Lord makes it clear by the quotation from Isaiah that that is not true. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There are only two choices for eternity, God's kingdom or the fire that can't be put out. That's it. Can I plead with you tonight to understand that? We're all mortal. We don't think we are. We live as if we were immortal, as if we'll never die. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if our Lord doesn't return, every single one of us in this room will die. And according to our Lord Jesus, we will open our eyes in one of two places. Let the reality of that burn into your soul and make sure you know Jesus Christ. There's a third affirmation. Not only does he say here that tolerating our own sin is the greatest danger to our souls and that eternal punishment in hell is a reality, but 
Thirdly, sin is what will ultimately send a person to hell. You see that? He says, if you keep stumbling, this is the idea behind each of the warnings he gives here, three of them, if you keep stumbling, that is if you keep sinning, you're going to go into hell. Never does the scripture say that God will send a person to hell for original sin inherited from Adam. Of course, we do inherit sin from Adam. We inherit moral pollution. We inherit guilt. We inherit moral inability. All of those were inherited from our parents, ultimately from Adam. All of those do render us guilty enough to go to hell, according to Romans 5. But nowhere does God say a sinner will be sent to hell for the moral corruption, moral inability, and real personal guilt that we inherited from our parents and ultimately from Adam. Instead, whenever the Bible says that sinners will be condemned to hell, it always makes the reason actual personal sin. In Mark 9, Jesus says that a pattern of sinning will cause a person to be cast into hell. That's the message of other texts as well. I'm not going to turn back to Matthew 25, but turn with me to Revelation. Revelation 21. Here's one example, and you can just see it so clearly. What determines that a person will be thrown into hell? Verse 8 of Revelation 21. It's patterns of sin, but for the cowardly, and the unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That is a pattern you see throughout the New Testament. A person will be condemned to hell because of sin because of transgression against the law of God, both the law of God written that many people have and the law of God, according to Romans 2, written on the heart of every man, whether he has the written law of God or not. That is what will condemn a man or a woman to hell. Number four, nothing is more important than your soul's eternal destiny. That's what Jesus is saying here. Nothing is more important than your soul's eternal destiny. The key issue in this life is making sure that we are prepared for the next, that is for eternity. Jesus contrasts living here in this life without those things that are most precious to us and he contrasts that with going to hell when we die. And Jesus says it's not a hard choice. What's most precious to us? Well, in this context, notice what it is. It's our own bodies, our hands, our feet, our eyes. When I read that text, I was reminded of Job. You remember Satan comes and and he afflicts Job with trials, but they're all external to his body and, and Job doesn't respond. And so Satan comes back to God and says, well, the reason he hasn't yet given in and cursed you, God, is because you haven't touched his body. If you afflict his body with pain, then he'll curse you because that's really personal. That's really precious. Satan was wrong about Job, but he was right about one's own body being his most precious possession in this life, and we do whatever we can to protect it. If your stuff is gonna burn up, 
but you can save your own body, you do that. Why? Because it's the most precious thing you have, life and your body. So Jesus is saying that your eternal destiny is worth giving up anything, even those things that are most precious to you, your hand, your foot, your eye. And Jesus really underlines the point here by choosing the right hand, the right foot, and the right eye. In the ancient world, just as today, most people are right-handed. There are only about 7% of us who are in our right minds. Most people are right-handed. So for the majority of people, it was the right eye, the right hand, and the right foot that were both dominant and therefore most important to them. Jesus says your eternal destiny is more important than keeping the most precious things in this life. You think for a moment right now of the things in addition to your body and its health that are most precious to you. Jesus says giving up those things to have eternal life is worth it. Number five, a fifth affirmation he makes about sin's danger and what we have to be willing to do is we must hate sin in all its forms and be willing to kill it in us, whatever the cost. Notice what he says back in Mark 9. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to enter life crippled. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to enter life lame. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. Remember, he's talking to his disciples here, and he's telling them, listen, when you look at the sin in your life, you must hate that sin in all of its forms and be willing to kill it, whatever the cost may be. This is a constant theme of the New Testament. Let me just show you a couple of these texts. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. He says, verse 13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. He's contrasting here the person who's in Christ and the person who's not. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, this is us, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christians put to death the deeds of the body, the sinful deeds of the body. You see it again over in Romans 13. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just said, don't live like the world lives. But instead, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Cut off the sin in your life. Cut off the sources of sin. Look at Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, verse five. Paul says, You've been united to Christ. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Don't walk like that. Don't live like that. You'll notice in verse five, next to the word consider in the NAS, there's a little number that points you out to the marginal reading. Notice what it says literally. Literally, Therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. In other words, kill sin in all its forms in your life. Don't let it live. 
William Hendrickson, the great Presbyterian commentator, writes this, the lesson is this, sin is a very destructive force. It must not be pampered. It must be put to death. Temptation should be flung aside immediately and decisively. Dilly-dallying is deadly. Halfway measures wreak havoc. The surgery must be radical. Right at this very moment and without vacillation, the obscene book should be burned, the scandalous picture destroyed, the soul-destroying file condemned, the sinister yet intimate social tie broken. Listen, folks, we can't play with sin. Jesus is saying you cannot play with sin and not be terribly, terribly burned. Now, understand that not one of us has the power to put sin to death in our lives. We simply seek to do that. We seek to obey our Lord, and he gives us that power. That's what Romans 8, 13 said. Did you notice it? If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You and I can't do it alone. It has to be the work of God in us. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. That's the reason you can do it. It's by his strength, it's by his power. We must hate sin in all its forms and be willing to kill it in us, whatever the cost. Number six, the ultimate goal we pursue is a pure and holy heart. This is really the primary lesson. You see, Jesus taught these same truths earlier in his ministry, and in that context, he emphasized that it was really the heart that was the real issue. Look back in Matthew chapter five. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses almost identical words, but here he connects it to having the right kind of heart. Matthew chapter five, verse 27. Jesus is correcting the misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. He's not pushing it away or wiping it aside or abolishing it. He says, I came to fulfill it. And so he's teaching what it really means. He says, you misunderstood. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And you stop there with the act. That's the only thing God wants from you is don't commit the act. But I say to you, you misunderstood. Here's the real deal. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then on the heels of that statement, Our Lord uses this statement. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You see the connection? Jesus is saying, deal with sin in your life, not merely at the external level, not merely at the act, but at the thought. So not only should we get radical in cutting sin out of our lives, that is, acts of sin, behavior of sin, external things, but we ought to get radical in cutting the thoughts and attitudes and lust and pride and all of the things that go on inside. The ultimate goal is a pure and holy heart. The real goal is a moral character, and you've heard me say this before, it is a moral character that resembles Jesus Christ. When we talk about being like Christ, that's what we mean. You're never gonna be like Christ in terms of personality. We're talking about a moral character that is like Jesus Christ. 
not merely refusing to commit certain sins or external sins, not merely refusing to commit certain sins of the heart. Instead, all of them, Lloyd-Jones writes, this is the point at which we often fail. We have only a negative conception of holiness and therefore we feel self-satisfied. What's the real goal? Romans 8, he predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's predetermined destiny for us. Amazing. So what should you and I do in light of our Lord's teaching here? How should we respond? Number one, we should examine the reality of our faith. Our Lord says that those who claim to be his disciples, but who are tolerating an ongoing pattern of sin, may in fact be not his and end up being cast into hell. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. If you and I are tolerating in our lives an ongoing pattern of unrepentant sin, then we ought to be examining the reality of our faith. I can't tell you how many times I have talked to people and urged them. They're in some sort of ongoing pattern, in some cases of gross sin, and I say to them, you need to examine your faith. You need to examine if you're really in Christ And without even a thought, their immediate response is, well, of course. I mean, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid or I I walked an aisle or what. Listen, you better take that very seriously. You say, how can I know? Well, here's one test right here in this passage. Are you willing to take radical steps to deal with your sin? If you find out that you're not really in the faith, this passage should drive you to Jesus Christ. The knowledge of your sin, the knowledge of our Lord's perspective of it, the reality of eternal hell should drive you to Jesus Christ before your head hits the pillow tonight. Number two, we should amputate from our lives anything that we know regularly tempts us to sin. Amputate from our lives anything that we know regularly tempts us to sin. Cut off your right hand or your right foot. Pluck out and throw away your left eye. Now, why does Jesus choose these three body parts? Well, the hand speaks of what a person does. The foot of where a person goes and the eye of what a person sees. This isn't all-inclusive, but it gives you a pretty wide swath here, doesn't it? The hand. Are there activities in your life that cause you regularly to sin. Maybe web surfing, maybe movies, television, maybe books you read, magazines you get, maybe the computer, maybe it's business lunches or business dinners, maybe it's going to the gym, maybe it's social networking. I don't know, but ask yourself, are there activities in my life that regularly put me in a place of temptation to sin, and I answer the call to sin. With the foot, are there places that set you up to sin? Places you go that really set you up to sin, and you see that regularly in your life? Maybe it's the mall. Maybe it's a friend's house. Maybe it's a convenience store. Maybe it's your normal route to and from work. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your business trips. 
I don't know what places there are in your life, but are there places in your life that bring regularly temptation to sin and you fall into that sin? What about your eye? Are there things that you allow your eyes to look at that cause you to sin? Again, some of the same things, magazines, Facebook, YouTube, the newspaper, whatever it is. In any case, in every case, Jesus says you must cut that thing out of your life no matter how precious it is. Go a different route home. Get another job. Get rid of your computer. That's what Jesus is saying. You must be willing to get radical with your sin. Now, just so I can flesh this out a little bit, let me give you a practical example of what this might look like in real life. Very briefly, men and women are increasingly finding themselves struggling with the internet. Most often this comes in two ways, either pornography or pursuing a sinful relationship, maybe reigniting an old relationship, becoming involved with someone emotionally in a chat room or in other ways. If you struggle with sin when it comes to the internet, how do you practice what our Lord is commanding in these verses? Well, the flow of the steps you take might look something like this. You might start by simply installing a safe surfing software like Covenant Eyes or NetNanny on your computer. Making your history available to the people in your life who can keep you accountable. If that's not enough, you might consider putting your computer in a public place public area of your house where nothing private can really be done. You might have someone else control the password for logging onto the computer if simply putting it in a public place isn't working. If that doesn't work, then commit not to use the computer when you're alone or others are in bed asleep. You may, gasp, have to get rid of the internet altogether. Or you might even have to get rid of your computer. I know what you're thinking but everyone has to have internet access. You can't live in today's world without it. Is the internet more important than your right eye, your right hand, your right foot? Jesus said, be willing to deal with your sin even if it means getting radical, taking extreme steps, not mutilating your body, that won't help but getting radical with the things in your life that lead you into sin. Disconnecting from those as much as you can. There's one other response all of us should have to this passage, and that's gratitude. Because I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I'm more than painfully aware that were it not for the intervention of Jesus Christ, I would be going to this place Jesus describes. And so would you. It is this, the wrath, the eternal wrath of a just and holy God that our Lord has rescued us from. So that someday we will open our eyes after death in His glorious presence. What a Savior. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, The Disciples' Greatest Danger. Next time, Tom will begin a new series, and we hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with a closing thought. Tom? 
You know, Bill, I think this series reminds us that we have to take sin very, very seriously in our own lives as believers. And we have to strive with everything in us by the power of the Spirit, through the work of the Word of God in us, to put sin to death in our lives. If we don't kill sin, it will be killing us. And I think it's also a great reminder that we need to cry out for the mercy and grace of God. If if you've heard the program today and you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ, you need to throw yourself on God's mercy and grace that he would bring you to true repentance over your sin and to, to new life where you could truly know him and be spiritually alive as he's promised in the gospel. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.